I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Hannah Murphy, our financial reporter, and also down the line from Frankfurt, we have Olaf Storbeck, our Germany correspondent. Our guest this week is Kendra Thompson from Accenture. This week, we'll be discussing latest news that Deutsche Bank will be returning to normal in terms of its payment of bonuses. Also a look at MIFID II as the deadline looms for the introduction of these new EU rules. And finally, a look at the wealth management sector, and why it fails to cater for women. First, though, to Deutsche Bank and down the line to Olaf in Frankfurt. Olaf, interesting news that emerged over the past couple of days that John Cryant, the chief executive of Deutsche, who took a very hard line on stripping bonuses right back last year, is saying things will be back to normal now, despite some pretty poor results from the bank and hardly a clear way back to decent profitability. What's going on? So, I mean, in a way, it's back to normal for Deutsche, which last year took a really extraordinary move in cutting its bonus pool by almost 2 billion euros. It paid out 2.4 in the previous year and cut it back to 500 million last year, which reflected the extraordinary difficulties the bank was facing back then when they had this 7 billion plus fine or settlement with the Department of Justice in the U.S. and other issues. Big capital increase, no dividend. So in this circumstances, the bank decided to really cut down on bonuses, which internally didn't go well with most of the employees. So disgruntlement within the bank was big. And I think it's an acknowledgement that you have to pay competitive wages if you want to retain the best people in the industry. And so that's what this is about. Is it about stemming the outflow of good people? What evidence is there that they've been losing their best people? So there isn't any hard evidence that there was a big brain drain at Deutsche. There's some anecdotal evidence that some people left. A senior investment banker at Deutsche told me that he had no problems hiring anyone in Europe he wanted to hire over the last year. And I think as long as this was seen as a temporary bonus freeze, which I think was clear from the start more or less, the bank was able to contain the damage. Okay, so what does John Crine's latest statement say when he says bonus payments will be normalised? Does that mean a return to the very high bonuses that banks, including Deutsche, paid years ago? Or given that we're now in a pretty low profit environment for everybody, but especially for Deutsche, is this new normal going to be a much deflated level of bonus payments, do you think? I don't think we will see anything like the pre-crisis levels of the investment banking heydays. They will go back, I think, to what rivals are paying at the moment and to what they used to pay before they faced the crisis year of 2016. But they didn't give specific details so far on the size of the bonus pool, which was 2.5 billion in 2016. Well, we'll watch it closely. Olaf, thank you very much for joining us. 
So let's move on to our second item, and we're only a day away from the introduction of MIFID 2. It starts on Wednesday, and I'm joined now by Hannah Murphy, who's been closely monitoring this legislation. It comes out of Brussels, of course, but notwithstanding Brexit, we are going ahead in the UK with implementing these rules. And they're pretty onerous, I think it's fair to say. They're pretty revolutionary for a lot of the city. Is everyone ready? In short, no. You've got lots of individual firms, so the banks, brokers, asset managers, trading venues have been preparing for months now. And you've seen huge swathes of jobs created purely to focus on MIFID implementation around legal compliance, risk, technology. But as you say, this is a sprawling piece of legislation, supposedly five times longer than War and Peace which touches on everything from trading, stock trading, surveillance of conversations around deals to how analyst research is paid for. And it requires a sort of huge IT revamp to capture more data on trades than ever before. Also, the EU markets regulator has made lots of sort of tweaks and clarifications to the rules right down to the wire a couple last month. And that's even after the rules themselves were delayed by a year because players weren't ready. So they're still not ready now. Regulators have made noises that maybe they'll be slightly accommodating in some circumstances, have they? The sense is that sort of day one, if firms have been sort of making efforts to comply, that regulators will go easy. There'll be a sort of period of grace. But for those firms who've just sort of done nothing, then they will seek to look at them early on. So what are the biggest headaches for firms? What are the bits of MIFID that have caused the most trouble? I think on the day, the part which is expected to cause most difficulties is around trade reporting. So as part of MIFID, regulators want to collect more information on trades in order to monitor for market abuse, for risks. Um, With this in mind, investors have to fill out 65 data fields, make sure their traders are identifiable. So it's really this huge data aggregation exercise and just making sure that data is collected correctly and goes through the systems without any hiccups will be a worry. The other challenge is just that players might avoid trading on the day in order to see what happens and see where liquidity goes because rules give asset managers more choice over where they trade and they add extra requirements on firms around ensuring they sort of get the best price for clients so you could see trade flows sort of shake up and go in different directions and people hold back this week with that in mind. So potentially quite a volatile day, I guess, or a volatile few days in the markets. If you stand back from this whole process, as you say, MIFID 2 covers a gamut of stuff across banking and investment. What are the most transformative parts of this legislation, do you think? I think one of the rules that's been most debated is the change that requires asset managers to separate the cost of investment research from that of executing trades. So the aim of this is to reduce any potential for conflicts of interest. But what it's led to is a debate over what the value is of both the sort of written research reports that analysts send out from banks and brokers, but also that sort of face-to-face meetings, conferences, calls with analysts as well. And initially... Banks were putting forward prices for this research package in the millions of dollars. As negotiations between asset managers and banks have unfolded over the year, those prices have come right down and still coming down even last month, which is likely to put pressure on those smaller research providers, brokers, boutiques, independents. 
then the asset managers themselves are mainly sort of paying for research out of their own books. This is another trend that was not predicted by regulators initially. There was a possibility that they pass those charges on to investors. Instead, asset managers are paying, which means their budgets will be tighter, which means that the amount of research that will be needed will shrink. So there's a worry that coverage of smaller companies could suffer here, which could in turn knock liquidity in those markets. Yeah, so that's one area where it'll only be over time that we'll see this flushing into the system, right? So we can expect day one kind of logistical nightmare and day 350 or whatever, we will see gradually these longer term implications flow through. Exactly. Definitely one to watch. Well, Hannah, thanks for joining us and explaining all that. We'll go to our loins for Wednesday. let's move on to our next topic and this is a look at trends in the wealth management industry particularly the focus increasingly that seems to be being directed at women in wealth management arguably an underserved client base to date i'm joined now by kendra thompson who runs the global wealth management practice at accenture kendra welcome thanks for joining us This is true, isn't it? I mean, for an industry that is in the 21st century, it's pretty striking that wealth management operators around the world are only just now waking up to the fact that a lot of their potential clientele are actually women. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to see, and it's happening pervasively around the world. The concept of advice in the construct of a spousal relationship has really anchored the industry with men serving men and focused on the needs of men and wives or spouses as a second thought. So one of the coolest things that's emerging today with the capability to customize and tailor experiences is that women are putting their hands up and saying, look, I'm I'm not just a spouse, I'm a whole person and I expect to have my money and my concerns addressed in this relationship as well. In fact, some of them are also saying, I wanna have separate relationships with financial advisors and banks than my husband does, or I may not have a husband. So I think the time has been coming for some time, but now it is certainly a major trend across the world. And what does that mean for the providers of wealth management services? Because as you say, as in investment banking, the kind of private banking industry is very male dominated. I don't know what the figures are, but I would bet that, you know, relationship bankers in this sphere are going to be 90% male, if not more. Does that need to change or is that changing to reflect the clientele's involvement? Certainly, we encourage private banks and all of those leading sales forces within the advice industry to increase the number of women in their ranks. And that's for very different reasons than addressing the needs of female investors alone. Diversity in the sales force and having female relationship-based sellers has been something that's proven to show high performance in almost every model that exists. But women investors are not standing up and demanding female private banking relationships. What they're asking for is tailored and thoughtful financial advice that meets their needs and preferences. And many banks are addressing that concern through more tailored digital experiences, through customized value propositions that target and change the tone of the conversation around wealth and advice. Can we put some numbers on all of this? If you look at the wealth management industry as a whole, which is obviously continuing to grow in many parts of the world, not least in Asia, and then the female component within that, how that's evolving, whether that's evolving at a different rate and whether the balance is changing significantly? Certainly. 
the hard numbers vary by region, but just across the Western investing world, Europe, North America predominantly, you're seeing the rise of boomer women who will outlive their spouses, as well as a generation of new women investors who are increasingly accumulating wealth at the same rate as men. So we see women as the most important emerging demographic in financial services and certainly in control of the wealth transfer money as boomer men retire and pass away. So the reason this is such a hot topic is not just because the demographic has traditionally been underserved. It's also because of the demographic shifts that are taking between boomers and their heirs and between boomers and their spouses as men tend not to live as long as their female partners. So in your research, just to finish off on this, what are you finding that actually female wealth management clients want and how does that differ from male clients? Yeah, it's interesting. We tend to look at female clients as um, not only different than men, but also an inspiration to the male value proposition as well, because a lot of the things that women want are things that men have traditionally wanted as well. Women are very interested in preserving wealth and in more conservative, outcome-oriented advisory solutions, which means they're less interested in the underlying instruments, the funds, the products themselves. And they're less interested in accumulation for accumulation's sake than they are in the overall impact that their money will have on their family, their community, and their life. As an example, 48% of women are more conservative in their goals and would prefer wealth preservation than short-term gains. We also see that many women are interested in variant or flexible fee structures that allow them to dip in and out of the amount of advice and the high-cost advice they consume at a rate of about 62%. So, you know, when we look at what women want, they want to be connected. They want to include the people they care about. They want to understand the advice that they're given and have a whole life picture as they navigate a relationship with a private banker or advisor. And they want the person caring for their money to understand why that money is important to them and the impact they expect that money to have on the lives of their family and those that they care about. And ultimately, many of those things also will matter to men. So as we see private banks build out relationship strategies to suit women, we're seeing many millennial and Gen X men adopt those value propositions at the same rate as the boomer women. So this is less about how different women are or how women are somehow in need of some special thought that men don't need and more about the reaction the industry is having to an underserved and often condescended to demographic and how much that is resonating with investors generally. They're a good influence, basically. Well, great to hear. Thank you so much for that, Kendra Thompson from Accenture. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Hannah here in the studio, Olaf in Frankfurt, and our guest, Kendra Thompson from Accenture. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.